Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. 6 p.m. under the big board. We decided three weeks before the San Fermin Festival. That's where we were going to meet. What they didn't know is when he whacked his head, a blood vessel broke and started a slow bleed. There's another guy named Jeff who ate his pillowcase today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Soup Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hankin. This week on the podcast, Visions and Hallucinations. So we're kicking off a series we call the best of the soup as we head into our 15th year and prepare to return to live shows, thank God, um, we're revisiting some of our favorite stories. And this week, visions and hallucinations, three true personal tales about experiences that seemed real at the time and hell, maybe they were. Yeah, I mean, we're in a simulation, so... Or a multiverse. I mean, any of these things can be true. But before we get started, we want to also thank Park School, which has supported us in this version of uh, the simulation. They are an independent, co-educational, non-sectarian, pre-K through grade 12 school located just minutes outside of Baltimore. So this first storyteller is Ryan Cole. And he is a man about town. He's a writer. He does a bunch of different other stuff. And um, his story is about a trip he took, literally and metaphorically. 6 p.m. under the big board. Now, none of us had ever been to Pamplona, but we knew there was a train station, and every train station has a big board. So, okay, 6 p.m. under the big board. We decided three weeks before the San Fermin Festival. That's where we were going to meet, my friend from UPenn and I. So we took off from Italy, went off on our various adventures, went all over. About 64 hours before 6 p.m., I realized I was 60 hours away. So I got myself on a train, which led to another train, which led to another train, another train, another train, and then a bus. And then I got to Pamplona about 3 p.m. I was like, all right, where, which way to the train station? They're like, over that way. I walk for about three hours, everyone saying, over that way, over that way. I get there at 6.03, just basically on time. We celebrate. We're totally competent people. All right. And off we go to find ourselves some trouble. Now, we didn't expect to be able to sleep anywhere because we had made no plans, and, of course, everything was booked up. But we didn't realize how awesome that actually was going to be. Pamplona is full of all of these parks, and all of these parks are full of all of these people. And it is just the biggest party I have ever seen. There's, like, probably 100,000 people out there just going wild. So that first night, we go wild. We find these people, they give us bodas, we start drinking the wine. They've got this like 50 gallon thing full of sangria. You have to lift it up, you go like this, everyone leaves just sangria like that. But oh, we had a very, very good time. Then about 7 a.m., we know the bulls are gonna run at 8 a.m. We're like, oh, maybe we'll run with the bulls. Let's, let's take a look and see what it's like first anyways. So we get there about 7 a.m. and we realize we're not gonna be anywhere close. People are already lined up like six deep. We're not getting to these bulls. The only reason we saw them go by 
was there were people on a balcony going like this. So we said, all right, this isn't going to be about the Bulls. No problem. Plan B, let's make this about the party. <laughs> so we were, we were like, all right, we got to make this something special. Let's do something we've never done before. So we're going out. We're flirting with all the girls who have places so we can nap for a little bit of time. We're just trying anything. Finally, I see someone. He's got dreads about three feet long. He's on a drum. I'm like, this is the guy to talk to. <laughs> so I walk over to him and I say, hey, what, what have you got? He says, I got this little bit of LSD. You needed one of these stories. So I go running back to my friend and I'm, I say, ha, 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 He's like, what? I go, ah. <laughs> it's like, ah, all right, where is it? I'm like, it's over there. It's over there. Go, 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 go. <laughs> so then he comes back and I'm already starting to trip. But I didn't quite realize I was tripping. So as soon as he came back, he's like, all right, let's chill. And I sort of jerk up, and I'm like, we need more drugs. He's like, no, 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 we don't. But I'm already gone. He can't stop me. I go off. I find some other dread-headed guy. And I was like, I got this much money here. What can you give me? He gave me this much of opium, which I had never had either. So then I go running back to my friend. I'm like, look what I got. <laughs> he's like... <laughs> Okay, all right, all right, let's, let's work with this. He starts rolling up a joint, and I'm staring at him like, you know what, there's actually two ways to take this in. You can smoke it, or... And I just go... Tastes like Tylenol. Oh, this is awful. Now, I didn't realize, but apparently acid mixed with opium is really potent, really potent. So I am gone. Most of the next, say, nine to ten hours are relayed to me. I know that I made love to a bush. <laughs> I, I think I had my pants on, but I'm not positive about that. I know I spent a long time in a bathroom being like, these tiles. Oh, these tiles are awesome. <laughs> oh. And I know that my friend, somehow he found a girl there hooking up, and I'm just playing with her breasts. <laughs> And he's like, dude, stop that, stop that. I'm like, no, these are bubbles and they don't pop. This is great. And she's like, uh, it's okay. He's, he's tripping, whatever, whatever. Finally, at some point, I'm sitting in a field surrounded by all sorts of other people. Everyone is in their own little adventure. And I close my eyes and I am on the edge of the world. I'm standing in blackness, in a doorway, floating in space. And I say, all right. This is the choice. Do I jump out of this door or do I come back? I'm like, uh, it'd be pretty interesting to see what's out that door, but <laughs> I kind of like it back there too. So I, I decide I'm going to step back. Right at that point, I go right back into my body. I turn to my friend who's sitting there. I say, move. He says, why? I say, <laughs> Luckily, it was so powerful, it actually skipped all the way over him. He got just like... <laughs> A couple little drops, and he's like, ah, it's okay, it's, it's natural, it's water, man. He's tripping quite a bit, too. <laughs> and then we go, we stand up, and we're, start, we're starting to walk around a little bit. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's happening, really. At one point, I'm standing in a, uh, at a crossroads. I'm like, I, everything looks the same, and it really did. I was like, same building, every corner, with the same woman waving out of it at me. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. So... Finally, we find ourselves in sort of a little bit of a back alley, a little bit darker, 
little bit farther from where everyone else was. You could see them, you could hear them off in the distance, but we were no longer really in the party. And at that point, a guy jumps out from behind a dumpster, takes a gun, puts it right in my friend's face and says, give me all your money, in, in Spanish, which I can no longer speak, but give me all your money. And my friend, who's tripping a little more than me now because he hasn't projectile vomited everything out, he falls to the ground, he's like, ah! You, you would too if you were tripping and a gun was thrown in your face. But I have one of those moments of just extreme clarity. I'm like, I know exactly what I need to do. So I go walking over to my friend, I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. I turn to the guy, I'm like, Mochistoso, plastico, plastico, bad joke, plastic gun. I'm like, it's a plastic gun. Come on, come on, let's go. And my friend's like, uh, uh. we go walking away. The guy's like, what just happened? But by the time he could think of anything, we're already back in the party to go find ourselves a whole lot more trouble. That was our Seven Deadly Sin show, right? I think it was, and like yeah. Pamplona, sober or merely drunk is intense. I cannot imagine. I can't <laughs> imagine. Um, yeah. Well, before we move on to our next storyteller, we want to thank a wonderful sponsor, Mend Acupuncture, which is named the best place to get poked uh, in Baltimore, offers community acupuncture sessions starting at 35 bucks. Okay. So this next storyteller is Kate Pratt. And this story was shared um, during a show we did about sort of stranger than fiction, things, things that are just true and stranger than anything you could make up. And Kate Pratt at the time was an eye technician. Um, and she's going to share about an experience she had during her work one evening. Yes, I'm a transplant coordinator and... That means that I surgically remove eye tissue from the recently deceased, usually in the middle of the night, for the purposes of transplant research and education. So we're all on the same page, right? Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to talk about one particular case. I must tell you I've done this for 18 years in two different states. I've done procedures in over 90 different hospitals and medical examiners and funeral homes. And I have done, in a very conservative estimate, between 1,000 and 1,100 cases. And let's just say 1,000 cases. 999 are over here. One is over here. And that's the one I'm going to talk to you tonight about. And what makes it different is not the circumstances of this death, nor the age of the donor. Unfortunately, uh, they're too common uh, to be set up as something special, and that's a shame. What I'm going to talk about is the experience that I had. All right, so one night I got a call. I had a consented donor this donor was a medical examiner case, and I, I, I raced to the hospital to go do this case as soon as I had gotten the paperwork faxed to me. The circumstances of his death are thus. He's a teenager. He's in high school. He uh, is somewhere, you know, 15 to 17 years old. After school, he was skateboarding with his friends. He took a, a tumble he whacked his head on the curb. 
He shook it off like they all do, got up and did some more. Come dusk, he went home. He had dinner with his family. He pointed out the big old lump on his head, and uh, it wasn't the first one that he'd ever come home with. And uh, he said he was feeling fine, spent the evening with his family, and then he went to bed a little early because he was feeling tired. What they didn't know is when he whacked his head, a blood vessel broke and started a slow bleed in his brain. Also, because he bounced when he hit his head, his brain actually hit the inside of his skull, and it, it started to bruise, and it started to swell. Well, there's no place for that to go, so it compresses and compresses and compresses, and eventually it gets to the the area of the brain that handles your breathing and your heart. And so he went into a coma, and very soon thereafter, he stopped breathing. And then within a couple of minutes, his heart stopped and he died. So I get to the hospital. I get security to take me to the morgue. I hang out in morgues in the middle of the night. I am a connoisseur of morgues. This is a particularly nice one. It has a lot of stainless steel and white tile and white walls. And if you turn on all the lights, you get a suntan. It is it's really nice. Um, the security guards come in. They unlock the door. They go and they unlock the cooler. They get the heck out of Dodge, and I'm there by myself. I have done this many, many times. I put on my protective gear, the hat, the mask, the the gown, the booties, and my gloves. I go into the cooler, a big metal room, very cold, racks, steel trays, bodies in white shrouds, and they have shroud tags so that you can find the person you're looking for. I move the forklift over. Yes, there is a forklift, um, but it's not a big honking forklift. You know, there's no diesel. Um, it's just the forks going up and down hydraulically. You've got to push the machine back and forth, but it allows you to roll that steel um, that steel tray they're on, onto the forks, and then onto a morgue cart, which I did. I moved him out into the autopsy room and closed the cooler. I opened the shroud, and like every middle-aged woman in the whole world, I leaned over and pushed his hair out of his face. <laughs> you have to do it. Um, I did a very quick physical assessment. There was very little wrong with him aside from what happened in his accident. And so I went over to start setting up my surgical. I I have a little traveling surgical kit. Um, I schlep it everywhere I go. And so I'm setting these up, opening up my kits, getting ready. You know when you walk in a room and even though you can't really see what what's going on in there, you can tell if you're alone or you're not. And if you're in a room and you're alone and somebody walks in, and even though you haven't heard anything and you haven't seen anything, you know that there's somebody there. Well, I realized I was not alone in that morgue. And so 
it was a very strong feeling. So I walked over to the doors, thinking that maybe security had come in and left because they saw I had uh, the shroud open. I looked out into the corridors. No one either side, nobody down there, nobody waiting. I even opened up the cooler to see if there was somebody moving around in there. There was not. So I came back in and I stood and I thought, well, maybe I'm having a stroke. <laughs> I, d I don't know. Um, either that or um, there's a UFO that's got an electromagnetic beam that's coming down and affecting my brain. And as Sherlock Holmes and many others have said, um, when you have eliminated all of the possible avenues to explore, then you have to look at the impossible. And so I looked over and I thought, well, I mean, what's the worst could happen? I make a fool of myself in front of myself, you know? Oh, well. So I walked over to my donor, and yes, they are all my donors when I'm there. And I looked down and I said, maybe nobody thought to tell you, but you remember you were skateboarding yesterday and you hit your head and you got up and kept on going, and you went home, you had dinner, you were with your family, and then you went to sleep. Well, you had a vessel that had broken in your brain, and it was bleeding, and it was causing pressure. And you actually bruised your brain. I mean, you whacked your brain so hard that you bruised it, and it was expanding. And it eventually shut off your breathing and it shut off your heart, and you died. And I'm from the transplant group, and when we got in touch with your family, they were devastated about their loss of you. But you know what they told us? They told us you were a good guy. They told us that helping people was your thing, and that they knew that this would be what you wanted for them to do. So they set aside their grief, and they filled out the paperwork so that you could become a donor and you could help someone see again. And uh, what I wanted to tell you was that it's okay. You can go. You don't have to hang around here. And I ran out of things to say. So it was time for me to do my scrub, Betadine scrub. I went over to the deep sink. I'm over there. And those of you who have ever had to scrub or watched the doctor shows, you actually start focusing on how many times you're scrubbing each of your digits, each side. So you start to focus on that. And I did. I started to focus on that. And then suddenly... About two minutes into it, I was alone. I was all alone. So I finished the case and, and, and went on with my life. But I know, I, I know that in my dotage, 
which, by the way, I think is going to start next week. Um, in my dotage, whether it's me sitting out on my deck in the sun, talking to, to friends and family, or if it's me in a nursing home, tied to a wheelchair, talking to my imaginary friends, I know in the core of my being that this is the story that I will be telling. Thank you. Oh, that's such a creepy, it's like wonderfully creepy. Cause yeah. it's so like, you know, not pumps and pearls, but just like a, 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 like a person that you wouldn't think would be necessarily tuned in on that level that's a, and I don't mean it for that to sound dismissive she just sounds like well, a very, you know evidence-based yeah person. yeah yeah no and you know I think like just transplant I'm fascinated by transplants um and I think there's something you know when you take something from one person's body and put it into another person's body there's like a, a whole lot of stuff that can be associated with that you know and yeah. um obviously this is not a new idea like there have been countless horror films about this but yeah in this case just the idea that there was a spirit or soul in the room um I thought was was as you say lovely and haunting so yeah speaking of haunting this next story by Matt Manning um who at the time of sharing the story was working as a psychiatric nurse here in Baltimore and shared this really unforgettable tale that I just remember that night really stunned people. So take a listen. So this story takes place seven years ago when I was a nurse. Um, I was at a different hospital. I've seen a few Hopkins administrators here, so you don't, I can already see you reaching for your phone calling risk management or something. <laughs> So don't worry about that. So um, I'm a particular type of nurse. I'm a psychiatric nurse, okay? I've worked in psychiatry for my whole career. You kind of lose touch on what interesting stories are, like interesting work stories. <laughs> you, uh, you tend to silence everyone else, you know. There's this guy, Barry, at work, and he leaves his milk cartons in the fridge for three days, and they smell, and I'm like... There's another guy named Jeff who ate his pillowcase today. <laughs> so, anyways, this story takes place seven years ago. So I was kind of a neophyte nurse. I was new and uh, getting used to psychiatry and how that worked. Very important job, working in psychiatry. A lot of times you're working with underdogs, people forgotten, and uh, it's a very fulfilling work, i got to say. Um, and, you know, we see a lot of different stuff. A lot of different stuff comes into the unit. Like I said, it kind of becomes, uh, you don't know what's interesting and what's not after a while, but this was, uh, this was an interesting case. So a mother and daughter presented to our unit for admission, and uh, the the daughter had dragged the mother in, and we go into the admitting room, and the the daughter says, "Mom, tell him why tell him why you're here." 
And the mom says, it's nothing. It's nothing. Daughter says, mom, tell him why you're here. And of course, you know, when anyone is resistant, I want to make it a safe environment for them. So I say, look, you know, anything you tell me, it's okay. We're here to listen. Okay. And the mother says, it's nothing. I just, I haven't been getting a lot of, you know, a lot of sleep. And so that's, you know, a common co-occurrence with psychiatric disorders. So I said, that's okay. You know, that's, that's definitely something we can work on here. Um, is, is there anything else? And daughter says, Mom, tell him why you're not getting a lot of sleep. That's nothing. The daughter says, you got to tell him or I'm going to tell him. I said, look, it's okay. You can tell me. Well, I'm not getting a lot of sleep because my husband keeps coming upstairs in the middle of the night and making himself a full meal and then making a bunch of noise, cleaning the plates and putting them all away and then down back to the basement he goes every night. I said, well, I don't know if that's a psychiatric disorder yet. (laughs) She says, yeah, it just keeps me up. Daughter says, mom, tell him... Why that's not okay? Mother says, I don't need to. It's nothing. The daughter says, my father died in Desert Storm. Okay. So I said, is this true? The mother says, yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, it's his ghost. He always liked to eat at night. His ghost comes upstairs, makes all this food, cleans the plates, goes back downstairs. So... We ask the normal questions, you know, have you ever seen him? Well, no, I don't want to get out of my room. He's a ghost. I don't want to see a ghost. <laughs> right? So we said, well, um, do you find that weird that you've never seen him and that the dishes are always clean and they're always put back? Well, no, you know, he's a tidy ghost. <laughs> okay, sure. So... We admit this unit to our, uh, this woman to our unit, and we say she has a fixed auditory delu- uh, hallucination. Most hallucinations are auditory. They're not visual. Okay, so this is pretty normal. And also with grieving, especially grieving that doesn't go well, we call it complicated grief. There can be delusions, hallucinations. You can hear the voice of a loved one that you lost. It's normal. So we admit her to the unit, start her on a course of antidepressants, some antipsychotic medication. About a week and a half goes by. They're not really doing much. But to tell you the truth, you know what was kind of weird? Is when people come in and they're psychotic, you, you kind of know they're psychotic. They're usually talking to themselves. They don't establish very good eye contact. We say they're internally preoccupied, which means they're having a kind of a dialogue in their head. This woman really didn't have any of that, okay? She just seemed pretty normal, except that her dead ghost husband was making, you know, spaghetti every night at 2 a.m. <laughs> All of a sudden, one night, I think it was the middle of the second week that she was there, her daughter called in a panic. She says, I need to come in right now. And I said, well, it's, it's 9 at night. You know, we can set up a family meeting. We can get a social worker there, talk to you about the treatment plan. She says, I need to come in right now. Okay. His daughter comes in, and man, she looked terrible. She looked totally frazzled. 
So we said, do you want to go in your mom's room and talk? She says, no. No, I need to talk to you alone. I said, okay. So we go into a side office, and she begins to explain. She says, you know, I, uh, my, my mother, you know, ever since, ever since Dad went, she, she started collecting things, you know. She, she started, things started stacking up in her house, newspapers, old boxes of junk, you know. She started hoarding. She never let me touch any of it, you know. She had this organization system, but it was floor-to-ceiling boxes, books, and papers. And I figured, you know, she was here. It was the first time she was out of her home for a while. I thought I'd go over there, and I'd clean up a bit. So that's what I did, and went to her room, and I tidied that up in the living room and the kitchen, and I went down to the basement. A lot of papers in the basement. I was cleaning them, and I was stacking them, and I found this big box of old stuff, stuff from when I was a baby. So I opened it, started looking through, reminiscing, and then I turned my head to the side, and on the floor, I saw my dad sleeping. I know, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't even know. I mean, uh, probably out loud. I was like, holy shit. (laughs) Wow. Awesome. (laughs) So, what? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he was, he's sleeping on the floor. I saw him. So immediately I start to, you know, fit it into a logical framework. I say, well, maybe, maybe this mother and daughter, they, they've been talking about this for so long. Maybe it's like a shared delusion. Maybe they're starting to be like enmeshment, like their, their ideas, these, these thoughts are starting to collude with. And I said, well, is he, you know, is, did you sure you saw him lying there? Oh, yeah, he's out in the waiting room right now. <laughs> we go out there. And uh, there's her dad just sitting there in a waiting room chair. And, uh, well, we discharged the mother and admitted the father. (laughs) He was a John Doe in Desert Storm and was brought back to a domicile in Virginia. He had head trauma and severe PTSD. And he lived there for many years and mostly didn't talk and had huge memory problems. But one day, he walked out of the front door of that domicile and walked to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to his house, crawled into the basement window, found a nice pile of blankets, and fell asleep. And just like he always did, he'd wake up at night, make himself a huge meal, clean up the plates, and go back to bed. storyteller um yeah it was truly unbelievable (laughs) but it's true so um yeah it uh it it was such a fascinating moment to to be watching the audience's reaction to the reveal yeah yeah so that's our show today on visions and hallucinations 
We want to thank Wine Source, a wonderful wine, beer, and snack supplier located on Elm Avenue in Hamden and Golden West, also located in Hamden, and they have a vegan forward menu and a late night carryout window, and they are very good people. And if you could visit uh, stoopstorytelling.com, you would learn more about upcoming events, which we're about to have Live in person. Live baby. Very excited. Oh, you can listen to stories from our archive, 15 years of stories, it's a lot of stories, and they're all really good. You can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast content and find us on Instagram and Facebook at Stoop Storytelling Series. One thing. Maureen Harvey, who is just our intrepid, intelligent, wonderful producer, and uh, you for listening. We'll be back soon with more stories from the students. See you later.